morning to the, uh, the people who are slowly logging on here. We've got 12 people online. Um, I want to welcome some of them. Mark Kerrigan from, uh, from the LSC group, as well as Juline. Uh, welcome to you. Gary Foster, nice to see you here. Uh, Donovan Bat, also from them. Uh, Avishan uh, Naidu, nice to see you as well, and Alta Marie. Um, Heinz Brunner, an old friend from the hospitality industry online. It's always good to see you, Heinz. Um, Kim Bailey, Julie Murphy from it, Mitch Gemmel, uh, Mitch from 10 Bompus Road. Uh, be good to see you opening soon, I hope. Um, Tracy Crichton, uh, uh, Tracy from, uh, from the Imperial Group. Um, good to see you on there. Tommy um, from Ica Heng, which is a wonderful training company that we know about. Um, it's good to see you guys coming online. I'm going to wait a little while uh, before I then introduce the speakers, so we've got a few more people on, uh, if that's okay. In the meantime, uh, talk amongst yourselves, <laughs> which is probably not really possible, I guess. Uh, any welcome as well. Uh, Chris Marie, uh, nice seeing you again. Thank you for, for getting online, as well as Gareth uh, from the LSC group there as well. Uh, Kursi from, uh, uh, from uh, the LSC Cleaning Company. Um, that's uh, good to see you guys um, online here today as well. Um, if, uh, uh, if you've not been on one of these webinars before, this is our third webinar. Uh, we've had um, uh, two very successful ones before, one with Johnny Goldberg, which was tackling more of the labor law side of things, especially during this difficult period we see ourselves in. Um, we also had a great one with uh, um, uh, Clem Sunter, um, uh, sort of a, a, he's, he's, he's a veteran scenario planner, uh, which was right at the beginning of it. One thing I've realized um, with these webinars is that uh, every time you plan one, something then changes, whether it's a speech from the president, uh, whether it's a change in the, uh, uh, the progression of the, vi uh, the virus. Um, so uh, uh, we're, we're definitely up to date with what we're talking about today. Um, we've got a good few people online, so I think I'll, I'll kick off if I may do. Um, today we're going to be uh, we're going to be talking about future proofing your workplace place strategy. Sorry, a bit of a mouthful for an Englishman with teeth on a morning like this. Um, without me then talking too much, what I'd like to do is to say please use the uh, the Q and A section if you'd like to ask questions of the panelists, and uh, then we'll pose those to them. Uh, the chat section is there if you actually want to if you want to place something up there or a comment or a statement. Um, by all means, ask any questions of our panelists that you see fit, even some controversial ones. It'd be nice to be able to challenge them on some of the thought processes as well. Um, so we've got two panelists today. One is uh, John Borta. Um, John is from Global Business Solutions. I'll introduce him fully a little bit later. Um, we've got Philip Mayer, who is the CEO of the LSC Group. The LSC Group is a company um, wholly owned by Imperial Logistics. Um, the, um, um, uh, Philip is, uh, um, is going to be talking to us and introducing the subject this morning. To give a little bit of background on Philip, if I may, um, Philip actually is a trained hotelier, um, like a lot of you who are on this as well, comes from a hotel background, started a little company some years ago called HSC, the Hospitality Solutions Company, managed to gain promotion through his success and is now the CEO of the LSC Group that has a number of different um, um, strings to its bow, including cleaning, um, <clears throat> an industrial company, a hospitality company, and also most recently, a medical company that supplies nurses to the industry. So Philip has bags of experience um, in the industry of outsourced staffing. Um, the intention of this isn't to in any way push an agenda. I think the idea is to, to look at different scenarios that might then assist 
um, in uh, looking at workplace strategies for the future. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to Philip Mayer. Uh, Philip, welcome. Morning. Hi, Stephen. Good. Thank you very much indeed. Thank yes. you. I'm going to leave this to you and I'm going to take my, mm. uh, my, my gray long hair off the screen if I can right now and get myself a cup of coffee. So uh, uh, hopefully you're all set. We've got quite a few participants on. There's good 50 of you. Um, welcome to everybody and Phil, over to you. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Stephen. And uh, thank you for, for the uh, kind introduction. Welcome to, to everybody who's, who's joining us today. It's, it's fantastic to uh, know that we've got so many people that are interested in the topic. Um, as Stephen mentioned, the, we've, we've putting out the, the topic of discussion today is, is how to future-proof uh, your, your workforce strategy. Uh, and that really comes out of discussions that we've been having with a number of, of people um, over the last few weeks in trying to deal with the, the current situation around the COVID pandemic. The, the truth of the matter is, and I'm sure as everybody is very well aware, is we're having a situation where business levels are depressed, the economy is depressed, um, the unfortunate uh, people at the end of it are our, our employees and your employees. Uh, and most companies, as we are very well aware at the moment, are embarking on some kind of uh, measure to, to mitigate um, the impact of, of COVID. And that often means that we start looking at our people strategies and what role the people will be playing in our, in our organizations going forward. Um, at the same time, I think this is unprecedented globally that we've ever been faced with such a crisis. Uh, the, the reality of it is, is that at, at present, as we speak, there's an, an international lockdown on all travel. Uh, there aren't any countries that are allowing for international travel as we speak right now, unless it's absolutely a necessity. Uh, and that has an impact on a number of industries, uh, specifically hospitality, which is probably the hardest hit, but it also impacts on other businesses, the retail sector. You must remember that when people come into our country to come and visit, they also, uh, they also impact uh, retail. And then in addition to that, we also have seen a slowdown in the manufacturing uh, sector, the, uh, the import and export sector as well. The end of this all really means is that we've had considerable uh, depressed business volumes. Um, companies are struggling to, to make ends meet. Uh, and as a result, many companies have embarked on, on strategies to start um, either furloughing or doing um, temporary uh, layoffs of staff or, or even uh, more permanent retrenchment uh, strategies. So what we really want to have a discussion about today is possibly what are the alternatives uh, to consider in this and what are the real strategies that you as an organization should be looking at uh, implementing uh, within your own business uh, and what are the opportunities that exist uh, to, to possibly not necessarily default to, to retrenchment in your organization um, and to look at a more, uh, some more modern concepts. One of the concepts we'd definitely like to explore a little bit more today, and John, uh, our guest, will tell us a bit more about that, is the concept of the human cloud. Um, but before we get into that, I want to just quickly give you guys a bit of a setting of the scene and, and talk about some of the statistics that have recently been published by uh, PwC. So I've stolen some of the, the uh, information. I hope they wouldn't mind. 
I did get their blessing beforehand. So uh, they've recently published a document just to show what the impact has been uh, on South Africa. It's an incredibly long presentation, so I've cut it down to the points that are actually just relevant to our discussion today. Um, and it's really to talk about the uh, impact of what COVID is having on South Africa in terms of the employment context, as well as the impact on business and our, our GDP. So this information is as new as the 18th of June, uh, which we know in the current scenario is always uh, one presidential speech away from being out of, uh, out of date. And things tend to change very quickly in, in, in our current landscape. Um, so at the, this is the information that we've been, been granted access to by PricewaterhouseCoopers. Um, and it is to understand the potential economic impact of uh, COVID-19 and how South Africa intends uh, to restart its economy and the impact that this is going to have on our economy. So the first slide very inter interestingly talks about what are the different uh, scenarios that companies are currently playing out. And this was a survey that was done a cross section of a number of companies operating throughout various industries. And this is to say, what are the plans that they are doing uh, or making within their organization to mitigate the impact of COVID on, on their business. So we can see here that 31.9% of companies have implemented a, a salary freeze uh, or have deferred increases within their organization. Uh, and to the right here, we can see when they say they're deferring increases, we can see at an average what period of time these deferments are, are happening. Um, we also see that another 31.9% are unsure of, of uh, what they're going to be doing in terms of uh, management salaries. Um, and then 19% have said that they are going to be doing an initial percentage increase. So I think it's very clear. You can see that a vast majority of companies are currently looking at uh, different ways and, and means to try and mitigate the impact of, of the pandemic. And salaries is one of those places that they are going to. And we've, we've, we know this and we, we uh, often have heard recently about companies implementing salary cuts um, to, try and, to try and mitigate some losses. Uh, in terms of the impact that this has also had on uh, um, the businesses and, and some of the other measures that they are, that they are implementing within their companies, 41% uh, of businesses have said that they have taken advantage of some of the relief measures that government has provided. Uh, and this includes obviously uh, the TERS the benefit that has been available for the last three months. And that has been of, of great benefit to companies where employees have not been able to, to work specifically. Um, I think probably the, one of the greatest benefactors of this has been the hospitality sector. Sadly, the TERS benefit has now come to an end um, as of the end of, of uh, June. Uh, and really now it's up to uh, these uh, poor employees now where they're going to be in a situation where they have to either sink or, or swim. 34% of companies as we have deferred increases. Um, we've got here that 28.7% of companies have not renewed uh, uh, contracts uh, with, with contract staff. Um, We've got there that 26 of them have taken other measures and these other measures include uh, the, recruit, the, the freeze on recruitment. So we've seen that the recruitment sector has also been impacted by this significantly. Companies aren't hiring at the moment 
and at, and at the same time, uh, companies also aren't filling positions when people are currently leaving the organization. And then we've seen some of these other measures that have been, that have been implemented. Uh, just by the way, we will also share all these slides uh, to everyone after the presentation. Um, so if I'm going a little bit fast for you to make notes, um, please feel free to put your pens down. We will, we will share these uh, slides afterwards. PwC have got the, the GDP impact uh, mapped out in three scenarios. They've got what they call a base scenario, an upper scenario, as well as a, a, a lower scenario or in the words of uh, Clem Sunter, the middle road, high road, and low road. And essentially what they have in their base scenario is that South Africa will be entering, uh, by their estimation, will be entering into level one uh, lockdown around about December. Um, this is obviously a moving target, and as the infection rates continue to, to do what they're doing, this will be reassessed, and as what we've seen, in the president's speech uh, on Sunday, we've actually taken a few steps back with increasing of our, of our restrictions. The impact on GDP around this is we can see currently level three uh, has a, a monthly impact on GDP of about a negative 19.7%. So currently our GDP in the economy is shrinking by 19.7%. And uh, you can see the various impacts over there in terms of level two and level one. So the and we see this in daily operation in our businesses that, that there's, less, there's less business to be had. Um, the, the downside scenario is that South Africa will remain in level two lockdown well into the new year uh, with no specific date estimated in terms of when they expect us to go into, into level one. And you can see there again, we will continue to have significant reductions in, in, our, in our GDP. And then the upside scenario, which is what we're all hoping for, uh, but unfortunately we have already missed the upside scenario, has us going into level two in July and then uh, by November hitting um, level one. So I think currently the base scenario is as what uh, PwC have ha have it at is probably the most likely scenario if we can uh, get it on top of our infection rates uh, and and we can start easing restrictions. The impact that all of these are having on our current GDP, uh, you can see that the forecast is that South Africa for the 2020 financial year they are and these are conservative forecasts have got us currently at a at anything between a negative 8.3 to a, a negative 10.6% on our, on our GDP. That's a severe depression, uh, not, not even a recession. Uh, and hopefully throughout the uh, easing of restrictions, we can slowly but surely start seeing South Africa's uh, GDP and economic growth starting to, to turn around. The reality, however, is that we will probably only see realistically, if we look at this graph on the top right, we will only realistically see in terms of the upside scenario, possibly by the end of the 2022 financial year, that we return to current uh, pre-COVID levels in the economy. The baseline will have us probably running at 2023. And if you recall what I was saying a little bit earlier, that is what we had, uh, that's what PwC have as the most probable uh, outcome. And then also we have potentially the, uh, the likelihood that we could stretch us out to 2025 to get back to pre-COVID GDP levels. 
Sorry, my screen is freezing. There we go. What does this mean for job losses? Um, well, this is significant, unfortunately. We will see that uh, job losses in South Africa are going to be, it's going to be a real bloodbath, uh, I think, in the short term. Uh, most companies, as we, as we speak, are currently in discussions uh, with, with employees around reduction of staff and also reduction of salaries, as we're well aware. And we can expect to see our, our unemployment levels to uh, rise up to possibly a 38%. Uh, that is in the scenario where we have a high uh, number of uh, or a low number of discouraged people. In South Africa, we measure our unemployment rate on an axis of uh, people that are actively looking for work versus people that are discouraged from looking for work. And people that are discouraged from looking for work are actually excluded out of the uh, unemployment figures, which is, which, uh, is actually a bit bizarre. Uh, but we can possibly look at our unemployment levels to rise as much as uh, up to 38%, which if you think about it, it's almost 40%. So four in 10 people, eligible people that uh, could be working could possibly be, be unemployed. Uh, PwC have the scenario pegged anything between 32.8 and 34.3 as their likely scenario based on uh, previous uh, information from the 2009 recession. But I think we can all agree that this is this matter is by far worse than what we experienced back in, in 2009. When do we expect unemployment figures to come back again? Again, we've got the three scenarios as painted by PwC. We've got a, uh, a low road, a high road, and a middle road. The low road has us uh, coming back only by 2025. So that's five years is the downside scenario. The baseline scenario, which is again the likely scenario as per PwC is around three years. And then the upside scenario is two years. So we can expect the current levels of unemployment to be around for at least a period of, of two years and uh, hopefully uh, not as long as, as five years. And that, that really sets the scene for us in terms of our, our current situation where we find ourselves from an economy point of view and what's happening with the, the pandemic. And also uh, gives us a bit of an indication in terms of the numbers around uh, the economy and how this directly impacts um, the, the employment numbers. According, statistically, according to the numbers that PwC have put out, for, uh, for every one percentage move up or down in GDP, we uh, can expect a 1% increase or decrease in, in uh, unemployment. So it's, it's a very bleak picture. Uh, and I think this is a, a good segue for us into to John's discussions uh, and giving us some scenarios to how we deal with this and how we come out of it. And what are the alternatives to simply falling back and looking at saying, well, let's start, uh, let's start retrenching people. Um, I think lastly for me, again, as maybe a, a closing statement from our side, I think for us as employers, uh, it is incumbent on us to, to, to act socially responsible during this time. Um, we need to really think hard and long about whether retrenchment is the first place we go to. Uh, you know, we're sitting in a situation where, where these people will really not, our, our people will really not be able to recover. Uh, as we can see, unemployment levels are going to stand at the current levels for anything between two and five years. 
um, it's a significant time to be looking for, for work. So great. So that's, that's uh, everything from my side. Thank you, Phil, for, um, um, for giving us a reality check. Um, I think a lot of us are doing our best to try and uh, ignore these figures and these trends, so at least then we can stay positive uh, during this period. And let's hope that the, the low road doesn't extend so much onto next year. Um, as we all know, then I think the, the high road all depends very much about, uh, <clears throat> about um, uh, the ability to be able to find a, a drug to be able to solve our problems. I, I see Marcel Kabilski made a comment there, and I think uh, uh, quite rightly so, is that the pre-COVID levels of uh, business were <clears throat> getting remarkably low. So we're already starting to see this, um, uh, this downward trend even before COVID came along. Um, just a question about the tours from the point of view of the hospitality industry, Philip, just before we go on to John. Um, is there a likelihood, do you believe, or any thought, and maybe John uh, might be a bit close to this, of there being an extension specifically for the hospitality industry in the TERS UIF? Stephen, as far as we're aware, there's this, there, there is lobbying that's currently taking place uh, with Business for South Africa and Business Unity South Africa, together with players within the tourism and hospitality sector. So there is significant lobbying taking place. The, the current view as, as it stands, uh, and my understanding is, is that UIF are, are not budging on this and the Department of Labor are not budging on this, in that they would rather, uh, it's now a point where companies uh, must, must decide for themselves what is their responsibility to their employees. And uh, if, if it comes down to people losing their jobs, then they would have to apply for the standard, um, the standard UIF. Yeah, Stephen. Yes. Yeah, maybe just to add to that. So, so you know, as as Phil says, there's ongoing discussion. I think the the UIF are, are certainly more aware of the fact that uh, certain industries and sectors are effectively still prohibited from operating, and uh, and that they've got to start looking at how do, how they cross subsidise or co-fund that. And also vulnerable people, Stephen, uh, you know, people with comorbidities that potentially can't return. Um, UIF are also looking at how they address those individuals. And uh, there was talk of a universal social grant as well. So there's a hell of a lot of discussion uh, in a very, very short cash society with very high fiscal debt levels. So it's going to be really interesting to see how it all pans out. Hmm. Oh, thank you, John. Thanks. Um, that's as encouraging to hear that there's still lobby groups that are going uh, going on and uh, are looking at ways of being able to help um, the people who are so valuable within certain industries. We're going to find an extremely difficult period going. Now it's been hard enough, and it's going to uh, perhaps getting a bit worse. I'd like to introduce John, if I may. John is the CEO of Global Business Solutions. Extensive experience in designing and implementing strategic work for solutions for businesses. <clears throat> He's held several roles, um, one of which being the CEO of CAPES uh, and also being um, a commissioner for the Employment Equity and Essential Services Commissions and a BUSA representative at NEDLAC. Uh, he's focusing very much on labor law amendments with, uh, with NEDLAC. He's also represented business at IL, um, ILO uh, level in Geneva um, and John assists companies in navigating the South African business landscape within the context of labor market policies and law. 
So uh, over to you, John. Uh, looking forward to hearing what you have to say. Stephen, thank you. And, and to the listeners and to Philip, thank you for the opportunity. <clears throat> Philip, absolutely, PwC's presentation, you know, really just points out where we're at and, and what the scenario looks like going forward. But, you know, as Marcel said, and before I get into my <clears throat> slides very quickly, there are three or four things I feel strongly about. And the one thing, Marcel, is, as you indicated, going into COVID-19, organizations were already in trouble. You know, in the last two quarters of 2019, the economy contracted by 1.2%. We were technically in recession. Uh, we see the first quarter of 2020, 2% down in GDP. So really in the last three quarters, we've had a 4.2% uh, contraction in the, in the economy. And that was effectively before COVID even kicked in. You know, the first quarter of 2020 being the end of March. So, you know, really difficult times ahead. I think organizations were bloated going into COVID. And just by starting off, colleagues, uh, one of my concerns is that uh, organizations just generally haven't embraced the fourth, the fourth industrial revolution. You know, the fact that COVID has come along and accelerated a number of the uh, dynamics is besides the point almost, you know, in my, in my view, in dealing with many organizations, um, the disruption of COVID-19 is just uh, an indication of what lies ahead. You know, with digitalization and a whole range of other challenges, companies have been extremely slow in moving out of the third into the fourth industrial revolution. And quite frankly, I think that's why we find the significant uh, bloodbath in jobs, uh, panicking, and of course, uh, resources that are already scarce being stretched because organizations have just not transformed. And transformation, of course, is, is a concept that means that you change so fundamentally, you, you, you almost not recognizable. And uh, one thinks of, of transformation and that you can't transform a business, you can only transform the individuals in a business. And that's where leadership comes in, colleagues, uh, so importantly. So I'm gonna take you through a few slides um, just to share some high-level views and to, to get your, you know, to test some of your, uh, your mindsets on certain areas. I'll be looking at workforce models that I believe are appropriate in this environment, as well as certain business metrics that need to be looked at. Um, but colleagues, I think what this slide tries to represent and portray is the fundamental difference across the four industrial revolutions and maybe just to highlight some of the big ticket items. I'm going to talk a lot now about empathy. I'm going to talk about authentic leadership and, and really businesses that are client-centric and human-centric. So, of course, can you imagine having lived in the first or second industrial revolution. Um, you know, that's where the master-servant regime was in place. It was my way or the highway. If, if you were there, no labor laws to protect anyone. And um, the only cue you needed was no IQ or EQ or DQ. All that you needed there was Q20 to keep the production line running. Um, and you can imagine the hierarchical, centralized decision-making um, you know, type of environment where relationships were not the issue. It was all about pushing product into the marketplace uh, and 
trying to assume what the consumer would, would need. And of course, in the second and third industrial revolutions, certainly at the juncture of the second and the third industrial revolution, we found labor law becoming a lot more prevalent uh, in South Africa, the Industrial Conciliation Act, of course, the ILO on a global basis, coming and looking at employee rights and this whole concept of an employment relationship uh, getting its uh, momentum. But colleagues, the point that I'm making is uh, in, in this environment, this, the second and third industrial revolution, the general characteristic was hierarchical structures, centralized decision-making, and very, very importantly, an inside-out approach. In other words, for organizations, banks, manufacturing businesses, retail businesses, they pushed product into the marketplace because in the third industrial revolution, generally the consumer had a narrow selection. Um, they had to take what was available. There was not um, the technology to do quick comparisons, to look at cost benefits and value adds. So organizations survived literally for decades um, on, on a blueprint that was internally determined and then filtered into the marketplace. And I'm going to come back to that now because we see that big organizations that have been operating for decades have suddenly started taking strain in the last year or two. So organizations like banks suddenly retrenching closing 90 branches, Standard Bank, closing 90 branches, retrenching over 1,200 people. Um, and it's not just Standard Bank, it's a number of other banks as well. Um, we see huge manufacturing concerns starting to do likewise. Even in the ICT space, we know the stories about, stories about Nokia, where Nokia used big data, um, but what they missed out on was the actual end user and empathizing with the end user. And we know today Nokia has less than a 5% market share. So I think what I'm saying to you going into this fourth industrial revolution colleagues is that we have to transform as businesses. We've got to change our mindsets. We've got to be cognitively flexible. And what I've tried to demonstrate it from a workforce point of view is this black shirt here represents the traditional workforce model. It represents permanent direct employment, lifelong employment. My father-in-law, I think five years ago, exited a business, literally worked for one business for over 40 years and then retired. You know, that was the environment because not much changed. People were able to go into permanent employment and know and plan around their future. Um, very, very little disruption in those environments. But we see an undoing of that. And as we move into an atomized working environment, colleagues, we see the forces around us, the disruptive nature, the cyclicality, the volatility, the uncertainty, undoing this traditional notion of what they call typical employment. Typical employment being permanent employment. And what we see is the the um, emergence of very, very other alternative forms of employment that have got different characteristics because in this environment, we have to be agile. In this environment, we've got to be able to respond very quickly to the environment that we face. I mean, 
just look at COVID-19 and we're not stuck with COVID-19. We're going to have natural disasters. We're going to have biological challenges. We're going to have data challenges with, you know, huge, huge sabotage and, and, and data legitimacy issues. Colleagues, the, the number of disruptions coming uh, are so significant. And the organizations that have not transformed, amongst other things, their workplace models, colleagues, those are the organizations that are actually taking the biggest strain right now. If you ask organizations, and we've done polls in this regard, what are the biggest ticket items that they're focusing on right now in COVID-19? They'll tell you it's employment-related matters, whether it's cutting off salaries, delaying increases, not paying pension fund contributions, retrenchments, you name it, colleagues. The big ticket item is workplace and employment-related right-sizing and making sure we transform in that space. So all I'm trying to point out is the deeper we go into the fourth industrial revolution, COVID is only one part of that disruption. We're going to have a little black dot here, which means permanent employment. It will have blended work, workforce models alongside permanent staff. We're going to have fixed-term contractors, temporary employment services. We're going to have robots. We're going to have outsourcing and subcontracting. We're going to have, as Philip said, the human cloud. Colleagues, you're going to have to pull together all of this in a flat environment, not a hierarchical structure, a flatter structure, a structure that's got data and where edge-centric decision-making can be made. You can't wait anymore for the CEO or the COO or the FD of the business to make a call on basic things that now need to go through four channels of red tape. You need to respond. You need to respond now. Ask the companies that are busy retrenching. They'll tell you exactly the same thing. They have to transform. And as you can see, I'm very passionate about it because quite honestly, colleagues, I, I love the idea of, of embracing the innovation that is necessary, design thinking, and so on and so forth. Um, I'm not going to spend too much time, colleagues, in respect of... Uh, of statistics, Philip has done a great, um, you know, job in, in sharing that with us. But what I do want to share with you here is that the last uh, decade and certainly the last century, we've just seen deeper um, impacts on the economy. So if we take a look, you know, since 1914, going onwards, the Great Depression. We go into the Second World War, of course, the global financial crisis in, in uh, 2009, where the economy contracted by you know, 2.9%. We are looking at something much bigger, much deeper. The other issue, uh, colleagues, and this is globally, the other issue is that compared to any previous disruption in the world and the global economy, we've also had a bigger disruption on the most economies. So it's not only cutting deeper than ever before, these pandemics and these disruptors are cutting across many more geographies. So here we see COVID-19 um, cutting across, you know, 80 to 90% of the world's economies. Whereas previously, these pandemics, not even the Great Depression, um, were not even remotely there. So the point being, that uh, as we go deeper and deeper into the, the disruptive environment, we will encounter more COVID-19s. Um, they may take other forms. For example, 
colleagues, we see the, um, you know, we see the, the World Economic Forum talking about in the next 10 years, extreme weather conditions, climate failure, cyber attacks, as I mentioned just now, um, asset bubbles, infectious diseases, cyber attacks, etc. Now, colleagues, the point is that as we have a deeper and a more wide-cutting disruptive environment, um, we will have to have businesses that are transformed. You can't grow an uncommon harvest if you don't plant an uncommon seed. And one of the biggest challenges that I find is if you want to find an organization that's going to battle in this new normal, it's an organization that has not transformed its workplace models. It's an organization that is still training its employees on skills of the third industrial revolution. Go and look at your workplace skills plans. Go and look at your, your annual training reports. You know, how to chair a disciplinary inquiry is really important, but more important is to, to train people in EQ, cognitive flexibility, digital intelligence. You know, colleagues, those are areas that need attention. And uh, unfortunately, organizations are not dealing with that, with the result that uh, there's a low responsiveness to change, there's high resistance to change, trust levels are at an all-time low. Colleagues, another angle in respect of what lies ahead is just if you look at COVID-19, um, we do know, and the National Institute of Communicable Diseases have indicated that we will be peaking in South Africa at around 1 million infections uh, in literally middle September. So we are currently, and this is a bit outdated, but we are just around 300,000 infections right now. Now, can you imagine that between now and the 11th of September, colleagues, um, we are going to go from 300,000 to over a million infections. We have this incredibly exponential growth in the number of infections. In terms of the number of deaths, unfortunately, colleagues, we are also going to see a peak of around 40,000 deaths. What does that mean to workforces? Well, colleagues, what it means is that even in this very short space of time of the next two to three months, our absenteeism levels are just going to grow incredibly. If you think of it, um, anyone infected with COVID-19, 14 days of, of isolation, there's a 14-day chunk of your sick leave that's being tapped into. Um, employees that have had high-risk contacts, in other words, came within a meter of someone who's infected, there was a failure of PPE, so high-risk exposure, a minimum of seven days, if not 14 days of, of quarantine. Uh, people that manifest with symptoms are not allowed to come to the workplace. There's sick leave that's going to be used. And, and Philip and Stephen, I've got a huge concern because we know that, uh, that sick leave comprises almost 5% of your of your payroll cost, you know, and just imagine what that is going to do to organizations' margins, their cost of employing people, simply because they're not managing absenteeism properly. Again, what does it call for? It calls for flexibility. It calls for the ability to respond quickly. And Stephen, you mentioned uh, earlier when we were chatting about the move to pay for performance rather than pay for uh, input. And I want to touch on that just now because I believe 
we're going to go more and more into that space by various employment and workforce models. Colleagues, the impact of job losses, plant closures because of COVID-19, companies having to shut down temporarily, do deep cleaning, recommission their plants. How can you do that when your entire workforce is permanent, colleagues? And then what do you do in terms of payment while you decommissioning and recommissioning your environment? Labor relations disputes. Um, we see the CCMA sitting with, I think, almost four or five times the number of retrenchment disputes that it had this time last year. Um, trust is at an all-time low because you can hardly even transfer someone nowadays without having to go through a section 189 or 197. We need flexibility. We need employment contracts that state clearly, even if you're permanent, that in this disruptive environment, the company retains its right um, you know, at short notice to amend your terms of employment, to implement layoffs, to look at flexible work arrangements, to pay for hours worked. You cannot have an entire workforce who's still on a permanent indefinite contract with guaranteed hours you know, as, as the only option. So organizations are really taking strain because they are not fit for purpose in their workforce uh, structures and their workforce environments. Uh, colleagues, the, I want to share just one quick example with you, a real-life example of what I believe was a, a case study for us to, to look at. And I'm aware of time, so I'm going to have to move really quickly. But let's take a look at Woolworths. And I got this information from a constitutional court case um, that I'd been following where Woolworths in 2002, colleagues, employed all its employees full-time. In other words, in 2002, they had a full workforce complement, full-time, guaranteed 45 hours per week. Whether it was Easter, Christmas, Friday, Monday, whatever it was, they had a full-time workforce. Then they started realizing, and they were very visionary, and they, they used design thinking principles, and they said, well, we now have a decision to only employ flexible workers. In other words, at 40 hours per week and flexible. Now, colleagues, that is a transformation. Was it just based on an internal, you know, mutual admiration society discussion at board level? No, it was based on being client-centric. It was based on business realities and cycles and disruption that lies ahead. So colleagues, by 2012, they had 16,000 400 flexi-timers. So they transitioned all but 590 people from full-time to flexi-time. They then set about taking the remaining 590 and converting them into flexi-time through Section 189A of the Labor Relations Act. Now, I'm not going to go through the pros and the cons of 189A. Of course, you can use it and you must use 189A. I'm talking about the principle and the story of a business that realized what lies ahead. They realized the vulnerabilities of just having a permanent workforce, of inflexible cost structures, and so on and so forth. And they then went and effectively, we see now in 2017, their entire workforce is flexible. Now, I don't know about you colleagues, but when you shop at Woolworths, do you see sad employees that look like they've been baptized in lemon juice walking around so sad because they're flexible no 
In fact, those employees are found to be much more motivated and client-centric than most other retail outlets. And I know I'm being outspoken, but nonetheless. Now, if we look a few years hence, what was Woolworth's financial position? Now, I'm not going to go into it in too much detail. Woolworths was still a thriving business, but some of their margins, their gross margin, their operating profit have decreased despite them having implemented this. But they're still a leader. They're a thought leader. They're a great business. But imagine if they hadn't gone through this transformation of their workforce where they would be now. I think they would, like many business colleagues, would be out of business or having significant retrenchments taking place. So I think in summary, Stephen, before I hand back to you, because I am running out of time, what am I saying to the colleagues? What I'm saying is, in the fourth industrial revolution, we need high responsiveness and we need low risk, right? Now, as I've pointed out, my view is that this jobs bloodbath is largely attributable to a workforce structure and regime that is not aligned with the new normal. In other words, companies are overburdened on their payroll. Direct employment is not the primary or even the only option. Everything nowadays, colleagues, is based on a percentage of payroll or a percentage of headcount, whether you're talking about people with disabilities, skill spend, you're talking about you know, um, a whole range of costs that are, that are related to payroll and headcount. And not only that, when you want to retrench, you've got to go through 189, you want to outsource, you want to subcontract, you've got a hell of a process to go through, inflexible, your revenue's tanking, and now you're sitting with these fixed costs. Colleagues, organizations are increasingly moving up this value chain to a blended workforce profile where they blend payroll with procurement. In other words, they use temporary employment services for absenteeism replacement, for projects, for seasonal peaks, for cycles, um, co-leasing. Um, outsourcing and subcontracting is just going to grow hand over fist. Why? Because all these arrangements here, colleagues, allow you to turn the tap on and to turn the tap off. As soon as your revenue tanks, as soon as there's disruption, you are able to flex, to flex your costs, to flex your response. And also, Stephen, these are invoices that are related to outputs, not to input. So I pay for output, which is critically important in this environment. The human cloud refers to anyone who is connected to the internet. Um, one Sunday evening, I had to generate um, a, a brochure uh, for a course we were offering. I knew my marketing and sales guys were having Sunday afternoon braai. I went on to Fiverr, I got hold of someone in India. Monday morning, I had an, in my inbox a beautiful brochure for 200 Rand uh, from someone who was sitting in India who, who delivered and invoiced me 200 Rand. Um, much quicker, much more creative than any of my marketing and salespeople could be. And it's on tap, no fixed costs. And I can also, if I don't like the work the person does, move on. Robotic process optimization and use of robots going to increase as well. So colleagues, I'm not going to spend uh, more time on this. Suffice to say that uh, I think we're going to see a migration quicker than ever before along this value chain because organizations need a blended workforce model. A workforce model 
that allows them the flexibility that they deserve and desperately need as we move into more and more disruptions. COVID-19 will be followed by natural disasters, will be followed by cyber attacks, will be followed by digitalization and other disruption. So there we have it, uh, colleagues. That's my quick take on this. And we're focusing so much on COVID. I think we need to, we need to transform our minds. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, John. There's a, there's a lot to think about there. And uh, I want to challenge you with the first question, which is from Marcel Kobilski, who's from the City Lodge Group. And before I say anything, City Lodge Group have actually been leaders in flexible, in flexing their employment force by multitasking people to work in several jobs uh, within their group. Um, so uh, the question is, is that all very well talking about a new world of work, but then the views of the ILO and local labor movements are very against it very against atypical employment. Is there any possibility of meeting of minds to be able to meet the new reality, John? Stephen, I, I believe there is, you know, unfortunately transformation does require significant mind, mind shift uh, movements. Uh, and unfortunately not everyone are capable of making the mind shift. So that's why, you know, we see even the World Economic Forum saying that in the top 10 skills in the fourth industrial revolution, cognitive flexibility is one of the top ones. Um, and unfortunately, we find leadership across all social partners, business, labor, and government, leadership that have not been able to transform their minds. So I think it's gonna be a stretch, especially in countries like South Africa. Uh, the ILO are definitely, uh, Stephen, talking about uh, you know, flexible and, 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 and more, um, you know, more appropriate labor structures. They're talking about it. And even now, Business for South Africa, in the uh, emerging from this, in their document that they've just published, uh, highlighted uh, labor legislation uh, as being one of the biggest challenges in, in, uh, in assisting us in, and in creating more employment. So is it possible? Yes, it is. Uh, not without a fight, Stephen. But even within the context of that, I think employers have been soft. Even within the current legislation, there's no restriction on better use of fixed term contracts. Um, companies are just not using it. Um, so I don't even think we need a change in labor law. We can use FTCs effectively. We can use temporary employment services. Section 197 allows outsourcing and subcontracting. To be quite frank, I think sometimes leaders of business are their own worst enemy because they're still stuck, as I said, in the third industrial revolution and they're not prepared to make the change and kiss a few frogs to end up with a prince. You know, they just want to hang on to the old that they know and, and that's what's causing the problem in my view, Stephen. John, following on from that, following on from that, I mean, um, uh, we, we, we all know there's a lot of still hierarchical structures that are within South African businesses. These hierarchical structures have been there since the 1950s, the 1940s, where you had to oversee a workforce uh, that, that may not be quite so talented as the workforce that you've now got now. With that though, um, in those structures are people who are gonna be very self-protected about any changes uh, to the way that remuneration policies work then with executives and with management. And what I'm talking about here is variable pay, variable pay for management to be remunerated more towards performance than by just showing up. Some thoughts? Yeah, well, it's, it's what's quite interesting to me is 
and and you know Phil touched on it as well and PwC and who knows what not everyone's picked up on it the single biggest adjustment Stephen in this moment of crisis or this time of crisis has not been technology yes we've all become zoomers you know um, but the biggest focus ironically is on employment matters and isn't it amazing how it took this pandemic for execs to call in their fellow execs and senior and top managers and say, guys, you need to take a haircut. 20%, 30%, 40% cut on salaries. We're freezing increases. We, you know, that must be indicative that going into COVID, they were bloated. I mean, companies have 20, 30 days of annual leave. I mean, where in your life in this environment <clears throat> can you find organizations that take 15 days, which is already 5% of your payroll, they go to 30 days of annual leave, so it's 10% of payroll, when, when effectively the world is pushing against that. Technology means margins are becoming smaller. Um, things that are traditionally done can be done more effectively, but we haven't transformed. So flexible work hours, um, haircuts, many companies doing new market surveys to realign their salaries to the new normal levels of remuneration, Stephen. And my view is King 4 has even put out correspondence and guidelines saying companies must now be very, very careful um, to ensure business sustainability and to truly act in the interests of shareholders and stakeholders, which means that you can't tear the salary page and the remuneration page out of the transformation book because you don't like it. So you transform technology, you transform processes, you transform a whole lot of things. But now when we've got to start looking at salaries and methods of remuneration and pay for performance, oh, no, I don't like that page in this transformation book. I'm just going to tear it out, you know. And, and, and I think there is a degree of self-preservation. And I think there is a leadership problem because, um, and I say this, you said we can be controversial, Stephen, but um, I think many of these boards of directors and executive committees or mutual admiration societies and and when they take a look at uh, scenario planning and the way forward um, i'd like to see how many clients users of their products employees are involved it's all an inside out process they're going to die because they need an outside in process to assist them thank you john phil i don't know whether you've got any questions you'd like to pose um uh seems like you're on screen there um, but I think a lot of it goes around that, you know, how do we now equip our line managers to be able to deal uh, with the challenges and still be able to get the best out of people with all of the anxiety this is causing? And uh, the question there is from Punza Kappa. Um, I would just like to pose that to you. It's a little bit off the, uh, maybe, maybe off the controversial side of things, but how, we, how, how are line managers going to manage differently uh, in this scenario? And especially when you're then looking at the line management, possible duplication of work. We look at the hospitality industry, there's huge duplication of work that happens from the traditions of, uh, of, of looking and overlooking your employees. Um, in other words, we talk about them as being key, key carriers and suits uh, who are just there to make sure that other people, that people are doing their job properly. So just to say, how do you equip them? Um, then how do you equip them to be able to uh, um, take on more accountability and responsibility. Yeah, I think, Stephen, I think it's more, more an issue of how do we equip uh, not just the line managers, how do we equip new employees or all employees to deal with the new world of work? 
Um, and the, you know, the, to use the example of Standard Bank, um, where we have a situation where we have a number of bank branches that have closed down and we've got 1,200 employees that have been put out of work as a result of that. So it's not, not so much about how do we equip line managers, but it's how do we equip the general employee to accommodate the new world of work, uh, whether we're going into the fourth industrial revolution, we are already in the fourth industrial revolution. So I see the new CI in future being the equipping of those people with the relevant skills to make them relevant to what the current, uh, what the current economy requires. So how do we take a bank teller from being a bank teller and somebody who sits in a branch waiting for customers to walk in and, and punches away at a computer. How do we take that person and turn them into somebody who is more relevant to the current economy? And I think that is what is required. And, it, and it's not just about the line managers. To answer the question about specifically that you raised about having the carriers of keys, um, that just comes out of, I think, you know, history and, and, and those models are very quickly going to change. Uh, as we see in, 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 uh, with the current pandemic being such a high focus on, on employment levels. Uh, companies simply cannot afford to have people overseeing people who oversee people who oversee people. Um, and as you rightly put out, there is going to be this gradual shift, I think, to a performance-based uh, remuneration packages where people are going to be where people will be paid for the time that they are there, as well as for the outputs that they create rather than just the, the arrival at work. And that model doesn't, doesn't support the, the, the old traditional model of having a manager who has a supervisor, who has a floor supervisor, who then oversees somebody else. And, and it's a, a thing, I guess, one calls cross-functional utilization, uh, is then equipping the employee uh, with a range of skills within a business to be able to take over wherever needed. Um, okay. You know, you do away then with the, uh, uh, the thing that is often said, it's not my job. It's not my job. We don't need any more not my jobs. We need people that are prepared to be able to move into different areas of the business, which will then make them a more valuable employee. And then also, I guess, John, that then works then towards the human cloud and the fact that you've got to be multi-skilled and multi-talented to be able to put yourself out there in the market and be valuable enough to be able to earn salaries. Stephen, absolutely. And, and, you know, I touched on that. One of the indicators of a company that's not transforming is if you look at their workplace skills plan and you see what they're training on, you know, um, I think there are three core competencies, Stephen, that uh, we need to focus on. The first one is EQ. You know, IQ cannot be learnt. If you're born stupid, well, that's how you'll die but EQ fortunately can be learned. And uh, we are not spending enough time um, working on employees and in connecting properly uh, with one another and managers with their, with their subordinates because connection in this environment builds trust and trust means you can make quick decisions and, and move quickly. But there's a fundamental lack of trust because people are too task focused. But if you've got the connection, the task becomes easier. So EQ is critical. The second one, uh, Stephen and Phil, in my mind is DQ, uh, digital intelligence. And people, old guys like us have learned very quickly in the last few months, we've become more DQ focused. I mean, just look at three months ago and what you're doing now. Um, but it's I more about- I a new camera. Um, and I can see from this is that I'm looking quite flushed. 
I think I'm going to turn this thing off. <laughs> well, Stephen, I mean, you know, I didn't want to say you specifically, you know, your gray hair, but certainly you've impressed me with your DQ. But guys, seriously, um, people need to, to be able to do intra and interpersonal uh, digital engagement. And then the third and final one I want to touch on is IQ, of course. Now, if you can get IQ, EQ, and DQ, um, you build smart trust, which means people have got character, means they're people of integrity, and when leaders say things, they don't second guess them. They know the leader is authentic. And then the second one, smart trust means character and then competence. Um, but uh, the problem, again, is, is you didn't need EQ in the third industrial revolution because it was manager subordinate. You know, now with flat structures and people sitting out on the edge making decisions, trust is critical and, and trust is a factor of, of, of empathy. John, thank you very much. We're, we're running out of time. Uh, I'd just like to ask uh, for some summing up. Um, I, I noticed that Julian Cohen, um, old friend of ours as well, uh, would like to pay you a compliment, John, to say that it was a brilliant presentation. I do think that it gives us a lot then to be able to think about uh, on it. But I'd like to ask Philip first, uh, in 30 seconds, could you just sum up the discussion for me? Great, Stephen, and it's, uh, thanks for the opportunity to, to chat with everyone today. Um, so I think for us, it, it really is, is we, we've got to move into a point where we as organizations are starting to better look at what our people strategies are and aligning ourselves better with what the new world requirement is going to be. We are going to enter into a phase, I think, in the short term and possibly medium or long term, where we are going to have continuous business disruption. We're going to potentially have multiple phases of reinfection uh, and we got to start gearing ourselves as businesses and how are we going to start dealing with that uh, and a, having a keen and responsible uh, workforce strategy that allows your business to operate sustainably through all these different phases I think will be key to the survival of, of all businesses. Thank you uh, Philip. John 30 seconds if possible. <laughs> yeah, well, I have a speaking fetish, as you can see. Um, I got it from Johnny Goldberg, my boss. Uh -huh. no surprise. Um, but, but really, just to say to the colleagues and to you that uh, I'm, I'm very, very encouraged by the fact that you guys are running these sessions. Um, when we talk about smart trust and workforce strategies, we've got to understand that it extends to your partners. So smart trust, you need trusted partners, who understand your business will be there with you and and you know three three strands in a cord are stronger than than one so collaboration with people you trust going forward is is really important thank you john thank you very much um i would like to uh, to end by thanking our our participants um for staying with us throughout this i noticed as i sort of look up and down the list there uh that uh, people stayed and they were engaged with john and with philip um, I'd like to thank you very much indeed for your participation and for spending some time with us today. Um, I'd like to thank uh, uh, Philip Mayer very much for your presentation and for facilitating um, uh, getting John to come and address us. So thank you, Philip. Uh, John, thank you again. Uh, thank you so much. Very enlightening. Um, I don't think as controversial as it seems. I think that uh, a lot of our uh, participants would, uh, would recognize a lot of what you're saying there. Uh, thank you again for all the work that you do for various industries and all the representations you have. Um, so, so, John, thank you. And we hope to talk again to everybody. Then we will be 
uh, distributing uh, some of the material from this. If you do want to watch this webinar again, we will publish it uh, so that you can then watch it and share it with your colleagues. If you think that's of interest, you're welcome to do so. Um, but thank you very much. Thanks for your time today. Enjoy the rest of your day and keep safe out there. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Thanks, Stephen. Pleasure.